a bestseller of the 12th century and one of the most influential Muslim writings to go to Europe. It's been credited with inspiring everything from Tarzan to Robinson Crusoe and all sorts of philosophies from Rousseau to Hume. We're talking about the so-called philosophical novel Hai Ibn Yaqvan, written by the 12th century Andalusian philosopher and scribe Ibn Tufail. And that is our subject on the golden age of Islam today. So please stay tuned. Okay, welcome back. Well, this time on the golden age of Islam, I don't know if you're under quarantine or in lockdown trying to find something to do, so we're going to take a, a look at something different, a look at philosophy and one of the most influential philosophical works of the Middle Ages and particularly of the 12th century. This is something that's known as a philosophical novel which maybe sounds uh, a little bit unusual. So we're going to see exactly what we mean by this. Uh, something to get your mind going and think about how do we learn? How do we know what we know? How do we find out what we know? These are really the issues that are going to be discussed in this book. So let's get down to it. Uh, today our subject is a very important philosopher, and this is Ibn Tufail. And he's a very important link in the history of Islamic philosophy. When we mention all the big names, he's an important link in that chain. Now, this man was born in the year 1105 in Granada, Spain, which was eventually going to be the last part of Muslim Spain to fall. But at the time he's writing, it was still very strong. At that time, he was working for the Moroccan-based El Moravid dynasty. Now, we know very little about his personal life, but we do know that he had a first-rate education, studying all the sciences expected of a Muslim scholar, particularly medicine and philosophy. These are the areas in which he excelled. He studied under a man known as Ibn Bajah, who was one of the best-known philosophers of his day, both in the Arab world and in Europe. Now, Ibn Tufayl would become the personal physician and advisor to the sultan of the day. This was Abu Aqab Yusuf. And he would be the one who would recommend to the sultan the philosopher Ibn Rushdi, who was known as Averroes in Latin. He's probably the second most uh, famous Islamic philosopher after Ibn Sina who was known as Avicenna in Latin. So you hear those two names a lot when everyone's talking about medieval philosophy. He's sort of the link between them. So you can see how important he is, but he was important in his own right. So although Ibn Tufayl uh, wrote on a full range of subjects, like all the people we've talked about, he had a, a prolific uh, writing career, and he wrote on a number of medical subjects, He's best known today and was best known in the Middle Ages for his, quote, philosophical novel, Hay ibn Yaqvan, which is one of the most influential philosophical works in Europe as well as in the Muslim world. And it's one of these that it's so hard to tell who actually read it and who was influenced by it. Uh, you'll hear a huge list of names. Uh, some of the people we know definitely did read it and definitely admitted that it was an influence on them. Others, people just speculate. So it was translated into Latin in the Middle Ages, and then from there into a number of European languages, especially during the Enlightenment. It became a big hit. Uh, it's said to have influenced uh, philosophers from uh, Rousseau uh, to writers like Daniel Defoe and Edgar Rice Burroughs, and many of them did acknowledge it. Uh, Rousseau talks specifically about it. But anyway, as we go on, we're going to talk a little bit about to what degree his work actually did influence any of those people. In a lot of uh, cases, it's just really superficial. 
Because, as I say, this is a philosophical work. So, I mean, when we think about Tarzan, eh, there's a little bit of philosophy there, but um, it's mostly guys running around in, in leopard skins. Okay, now, as was very common in the day, uh, Hai ibn Yaqlan is not original. Uh, the great philosopher Ibn Sina, he wrote a text of exactly the same name on the same subject. But his was 11 pages long, and Ibn Tufayl's runs about 60 pages and is much more detailed and ambitious. And even the two main characters of the last part of the book, uh, Absal and Salaman, they come directly from another book by Ibn Sina, which is named after them. So, I mean, he's obviously taking something that was already well-known and writing upon it. Now, that was not frowned upon in the day. You didn't get sued for it back then. I mean, when we think about uh, Shakespeare stories, none of those were original. He didn't invent Romeo and Juliet or Richard III or any of these people. Okay, so what is this thing, a philosophical novel? Um, I don't know, maybe that sounds like something you would want to avoid. And depending on how it was written, it might be. But this is actually, a, it's an interesting read. It's been translated into English. There's many uh, up-to-date modern versions of it in English out there. And it's actually pretty interesting and pretty easy to read. So what are we talking about when we say that? Well, the term novel here is really loose, and um, I mean, they're really stretching the point here, but that's often what you're going to hear it called. Really, this thing is more like a thought experiment. So there is a basic story to it, but it's one of these, you know, what-if kind of stories. It's obvious that the story is just a frame for some sort of philosophical speculation, you know, kind of like the Good Samaritan story or the Prodigal Son story. I mean, we're not meant to believe that this, you know, guy actually went out and blew all his money and started sleeping with pigs and stuff like that. It's, it's obviously meant to teach something. And so that's the story here. I mean, um, this particular thought experiment it involves a child who grows up on an island with no people, and he has to learn everything himself. Now, by the end of the story, when he hits age 50, he has reached the highest possible level of enlightenment that you can, all by learning by himself. Now, this is not an adventure story. I mean, this is not meant to be exciting moments of how this kid survives and has narrow scrapes with death and anything. I mean, it is, again, it's a thought experiment, basically symbolic about how the human mind, starting from nothing, from its natural state, how it evolves to these higher levels. I mean, because let's be honest, um, I think any any one of us out there now, I mean, I know the listeners of this program are some very intelligent and highly cultured people, uh, but if you were dropped off on a desert island as a baby, um, probably unlikely that you're going to uh, grow up to be a great philosopher. You'll probably really be uh, struggling just to survive, okay? So it's, it's more, we have to remember, this is like a, a symbolic allegory here of... Um, this young child, whose name is Hai, uh, he represents the human being, quote, the generic human mind as it goes through these stages. And I think this is important when you hear some of the comparisons. Uh, this thing is often compared to the Jungle Book uh, or Robinson Crusoe and Tarzan. But really what they're focusing on there is just the basic frame story of a young kid you know, growing up in the wilderness, being raised by some kind of animals, and that's just the basic framework. Okay, that is not the real intent of this work. Uh, he wants to talk about basically how the mind learns, what is the proper way to learn critical thinking, then going on to, I mean, it's his views on education, then going on to his ideas about religion and philosophy in that sense. So, you know, this is kind of like people who refer to crime and punishment as a murder mystery. I mean, they obviously haven't read the book. And so that's what we're talking about here. So, I mean, again, calling it a novel or a story is kind of loose because, I mean, if you read it for that, if someone told you, here's, a, here's an exciting story about a, 
someone living on a desert island, it would be kind of weird. You would say, I don't really think this is what would happen if you were on a desert island. Okay, so as I said, this is a thought experiment. And these were a very popular tool in philosophy, have been for a long time. Plato used these. Probably his most famous one is the example of the cave, if you've had to study that in, in college. But that's a story in which people spend their whole lives chained up in a cave looking at a wall. And they're chained up in such a way that all they can do is look straight forward at the wall. And there are people behind them making shadows on the wall. And his point was that to them, they would think the shadows were reality. They would not know that those were a reflection of something else because that's all they would ever see. Now, I bring that up because obviously that story is impossible for a number of reasons. Okay, I mean, there's no way that could happen. But that was not the point. The idea is what Plato's saying, you know, what if, if this were possible, you know, what would those people think? You know, sort of the modern version of this is, you know, what if a Martian landed here? You know, what if a, an alien landed and saw one of our presidential debates? What would they think? Well, I mean, obviously there's a whole lot of problems with that, but I mean, that's, that's the idea. Okay, so that's what this story is. Now, Ibn Tufayl is actually building on a more recent and more famous thought experiment, and this is one conceived by Ibn Sina, who was you know, really the model he follows. He was not a student of Ibn Sina, but it's obviously, I mean, that's the guy that he holds up as his role model. And Ibn Sina's famous um, thought experiment was known as the floating man. And in this one, we're asked to imagine a person who exists. He's floating in a kind of void. And we said that in some cases it's said that he's falling or he's just floating. Uh, but uh, this particular person is unable to see or to hear anything. I mean, none of his senses work. And he even goes so far to say that his limbs, his fingers are spread out in such a way that he doesn't make any contact with himself. So the idea is that this person is getting absolutely no sense data at all that he exists. But we're asked to think, would that person still believe that he exists? And the answer is supposed to be yes, because why? Because he has his own consciousness. It's the consciousness is the proof that he exists. And this is often compared to Descartes' famous saying, quote, I think, therefore I am. Uh, and it's not quite the same, but I mean, you, you get the idea. Again, there's no way that this, how is this person floating in the air and doing all this stuff? It's impossible, but it's a way to get us to isolate a specific idea or a specific question. So Ibn Tufayl is going to do the same thing with a person who spends their whole life on an island without any other input from other human beings. But he's got plenty of input from nature. And so basically he's got to figure out the entire world on his own. And as I say, you have to think of him as being like the, the prototype um, of the human mind. This is what, at least in his, his opinion, what a human mind would do all by itself. Okay, now just a little background. If you remember way back, way back into early episodes... Um, when we talked about Ibn Sina and the rationalists, remember back in the Abbasid era, we had this you know, big uh, struggle between the rationalists and the traditionalists. And the rationalists were people who believed you could figure out everything from human reason. I mean, the human brain could figure out everything all the way up to the highest religious truths. Now, they were mad that most people don't do that, uh, and so that's why they said you need to have laws and revelations and you need to have schools where we teach you to memorize things. And, you know, in, they went so far as to say this is the reason we have prophets, because God has to give some, you know, direct commands. Do this, don't do that, and so forth, because some people can't figure it out. But, at least in their thinking... But if everybody really used their brains, um, they could figure all this stuff out on their own. Uh, that is definitely the school that Ibn Tufail is coming from. This is the story of a guy, you drop him on a desert island, 
and he figures everything out to the point of when he hits his old age, he's now teaching all the other civilized nations all these great philosophical truths. That's a bit of a spoiler alert there. to get to the actual story. Hai ibn Yaqdhan is the name of the main character. Hai means something that is alive. And ibn Yaqdhan is the son of wakefulness or awareness, right? So he's the one who's aware. Now, please, this is not to be confused with the popular buzzword today of woke. That's not what we're talking about here. Um, But we're given two different origin stories for this person. And this is because Ibn Tufayl was trying to accommodate two different views on the origin of life that are not really important to us today. Uh, The bottom line is both of these end up with a newborn baby on an island with no humans. Now in one story he generates spontaneously from clay through a very elaborate process that is described in very great detail. You might might wonder why, but it's based on the science of the day. And it includes some uh, beliefs that we know today are not correct, one of them which is the fact that the sun is not hot, for example. Now, I mention this only because if you try and read this book yourself, you're liable to get stuck in the first Uh, couple of pages where he's describing this and you might wonder I mean what on earth is this about when you're talking about this blob of mud uh, dividing into different parts and all that but I mean if you kind of skip that part and you get to the the part where he actually starts learning then it's a lot more interesting the second option is where there's a princess on another island who has a secret affair with a guy named Yaqvan and they put the baby in a raft and send him adrift and he ends up on the island. Um, And so that's why his name is Hai ibn Yaqvan. And so the point here is he's trying to be objective and logical so he gives an alternative story for those people who don't buy his scientific speculation because the idea of life spontaneously generating out of mud um, you know, was questionable. So some people wouldn't buy that, so he doesn't want that to be an obstacle. Okay, anyway, uh, we have Hai, who is now on this uh, deserted island, and he's all alone. And from here on out, the stories are the same. So Hai is then adopted by a deer, and he's nursed by this deer. Uh, And the deer eventually teaches him how to gather food and stuff like that, all the basic things he needs to do to survive. Uh, And at this point on, we're given very detailed descriptions of how Hai learns everything by trial and error. So he will do something, and then he observes, and then he learns. And this starts from the very basics of... You know, he cries when he's hungry, and then he gets fed, so he learns to cry when he's hungry, and so on. And this leads all the way up to him I mean, discovering things about the nature of the universe and God. Uh, eventually, he's going to learn to make tools and weapons and clothing, and he will recognize the difference between himself and other animals. And he learns to, to make these things by observing animals. So he learns that whatever he doesn't have, he can make an equivalent of it. He doesn't have horns. He doesn't have teeth. So he makes a spear that works the same way. Okay, so it's this part of the story which inspired Edgar Rice Burroughs to write Tarzan. And he, he definitely did. He was um, inspired by this particular story. And you can see the similarities in the story to some degree. It's basically working like the same thing. And, I mean, there is a little bit of philosophy in Tarzan. He's making some comments about society of the day when Tarzan eventually moves to London. Um, But that's basically where the similarity ends. Uh, A similar comparison is made to Rudyard Kipling's Jungle Book. And that one has even less philosophy into it. Um, And so it's sort of, you know, sort of a mistaken comparison because... For those books, um, I mean, the learning to survive and dominate in the the wilderness is the point. 
Uh, for Ibn Tufayl, this is all just set up. I mean, he wants to get to talk about philosophy and religion. I mean, he's really not interested in trying to prove how mankind discovered fire or developed tools. Uh, but anyway, this first phase of uh, Hari's life is the phase where he is dependent uh, when he has to learn to survive, uh, when others have to take care of him. And as it turns out, uh, Hari's life is divided into a number of seven-year periods. I mean, there's eventually going to be seven of these because it's going to take him up to um, his last point is at age 50. So you do the math, that's just after 49. And he makes it very clear. Each one is a, a seven-year period where he learns different things. Now, of course, that's a bit, um, you know, artificial. But what uh, Ibn Tufayl is trying to refer to here is the way there are stages of our intellectual development. So phase one, which we just talked about, is, you know, survival needs. How do you get food? How do you get shelter? And so forth. Eventually, by the end of phase one, he's able to live without the direct care of his, quote, mother, which is this deer who's taking care of him. Okay, uh, so between ages seven and 14, he learns to differentiate himself from the other animals. And this is where he realized that physically, humans are pretty weak and ridiculous creatures, and they, they really are, right? Um, he becomes aware of his nakedness, and he's embarrassed by it. Now, this is not like Adam and Eve in the Bible, where you know we're somehow uh, meant to believe that they're they're ashamed to be walking around naked because it's some sort of you know moral indecency. When I mean, there's only two people on the planet, um, and their husband and wife, but. Okay, you know, somehow they realize you're not supposed to be naked. That's not what he's talking about here. This, in this case, it's a practical thing. He realizes that one of his weaknesses is being naked because the animals have protection from the elements. They have fur, for example, that keep them warm and so forth. And he realizes how weak he is. So he makes a suit for himself out of eagle feathers. And it's like really great, and now he's he's fine. And so likewise... Every time he has to compete for animals to get food, he always ends up getting beaten up because they've got teeth, they've got horns, they've got hooves. And, you know, you think about what a human's got um, when it's just naked. I mean, doesn't have much to put up a fight. Um, and so he, he gets tired of getting beaten up by all these animals. And so eventually he begins to fashion some weapons. So he looks at the natural weapons and says, wow, okay, these... Um, these deer, when they grow up, they have antlers, and they can poke you with them. So he makes a spear and starts poking people. Uh, not poke people, excuse me. He starts poking other animals. Okay, by the end of this phase, uh, now the animals are running away from him. Okay, and this is, this is the theme of phase two, is whenever he realizes a natural weakness, he uses his ingenuity to fix it and eventually becomes more powerful than the other animals. Uh, then he starts to domesticate other animals like horses. He realizes he can use these. Uh, and so what we're seeing here in phase two is the dominance of the humans. This is the part where the intellect makes mankind the dominant species because um, up to this point, he, he's about the weakest thing on this island. Okay. So we got him up to age 14, and now he's just, I mean, he's like Tarzan. He's like Mowgli. He's the, the terror of the jungle. Okay, so our next phase is going to take him up to age 21. Okay, now um, this doesn't mean he's able to drink. Uh, this is uh, where he's going to really develop his curiosity. And the key event here is the death of the deer, who has been his mother up to this time. And so uh, she dies, and now he is puzzled. He spends uh, quite a while trying to figure out what death is. Uh, you would think he's seen death before, uh, but now he's really looking at it up close. And so like everything with, with Hay ibn Yaqvan, um, what, what he's trying to show here is the complete process of rational deduction. Okay, so nothing is taken for granted. Um, now, I mean, it seems like animals have this instinct they can recognize when something's dead. But with, with everything here, he's going to start from zero 
and then make the conclusions. So he looks at the deer. He notices it looks like the other deers, but it's not moving. It was moving before, but why is it not moving now? And so he, he, he does all this examination, and so he does what the logical thing anyone would do in this situation. He starts cutting up the deer and dissecting it. Okay, so this is another clue. We're not looking at a conventional novel or a story here. Like in Tarzan, right, the part where his gorilla mother dies, that's sad, right? That's the big tearjerker in the Disney version. Um, he's certainly not going to dissect the, the gorilla. But in this book, it's all about scientific curiosity. So the fact that his, quote, mother, his adopted mother is, is dead, um, the, the big thing is, you know, doing an autopsy on her. So this, this is how we know. We're, we're not talking about a, a story, per se. We're, we're talking about a description of thinking. Uh, anyway, the dissection part of this book is described in probably a lot more detail than you would want. But we have to remember, Ibn Tufayl uh, was a physician, so he's going to be really interested in these details about, you know, taking out a liver and describing the way it works compared to the way a lung works and a kidney. I mean, he's really into this stuff. Um, you're probably not, but um, we go through it. And this leads to one of the key moments in the text, and it's even said that because this is where he goes from the physical world to the spiritual world. Now, when we talk spiritual, we're not talking about him doing astral projection or any of this stuff, or, you know, talking to Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, basically talking about metaphysics, stuff that is beyond the physical. So, of course, he takes the deer apart one by one, and he examines all the organs, but he can, he can find no deficiency in them, nothing that, that would explain why this is not a live deer. Uh, but eventually he l concludes that the heart is the key organ for the entire body because everything branches out from the heart. And that's, of course, what they believed at the time. And the heart's protected by ribs and all this other stuff. Now he notices that the heart has four chambers, but one of the chambers of the heart is empty. Aha. So he said, well, why would you have an empty chamber, right, in the heart? So he says, whatever it is that makes live things live must have been in this chamber, and now it's gone. Because this is the only difference he noticed from other deer. I mean, how he knows what they look like inside, I don't know. Okay, now, whether that logic makes any sense to you or not, this is where he realizes there is some life-giving force it comes into the body and eventually leaves it. Now that, of course, is going to be the soul. And from this, he's going to drive all about religion all on his own. And, and really, I mean, he's going to get into some serious theology. So, again, whether this is you think this is plausible or not, I mean, it's a bit of a stretch. But what he is trying to show is how the human mind goes from just looking at physical things to um, looking at the spiritual beyond, and again, it is it is a bit it is a bit of a cheat because we know in human history that uh, humans were inventing religion long before they were understanding how the body worked, before they were getting into any kind of anatomy or medicine. I mean, they they were making up religion very early on. But remember, he is a rationalist, right? And to him, the correct religion is Islam, and it's completely compatible with science and that whether you use scientific exploration or reading the scriptures you're going to come to the exact same truth so the fact that we got a guy here dissecting hearts and he comes up with islam hey in the mind of a rationalist this is how the world works or at least they're going to say that's how it works okay around this time he also discovers fire the same way they do in all the caveman movies uh, and he discovers he can use it. He can transfer it. He can keep it going. Okay. Now, in in, in this story, though, uh, we're not going for fire as the, you know a means of dominating the animal kingdom, like you know in the Jungle Book, right, where the uh, king King Louis, the king of the monkeys, is trying to get the fire. No, that's not what we're talking about. He's looking at something much more metaphysical, and so he realizes that fire has energy. It has power. And he remembers from the death of the deer um, that, that it was missing something. 
And he also remembers that heat was a big difference between live and living things, right? A live body is warm. And remember, his mother, the deer, used to shelter him because he was this ridiculous naked human uh, when it was cold. But once she dies, the heat goes away and she becomes cold. So he's going to conclude that what is in the fire is also what's in living things. And when you think about it, when you watch fire, I mean, if you know, if you don't know exactly what's going on with fire, you could feel the same way, right? You put fuel into it, fire burns, um, it's constantly changing. I mean, you can't touch it or you know, put it in a bottle or something, but it's always, you know, you know, going and consuming energy and producing energy. Uh, and so, to him, fire, and this is what they thought, fire is a source of energy. Okay, uh, now the way he's going to confirm this is a little bit disgusting and it is certainly going to offend any animal lovers out there. But remember, this is the 12th century, okay? So in Europe, they were burning people alive. Uh, and even today, you know, we do cruel animal testing in labs. Uh, so, I mean, cut him some slack here. But yeah, it is a bit disgusting. So what he starts doing is cutting open live animals, and checking out their hearts and comparing to them to the dead one. And lo and behold, he finds when you cut a live heart out of something, uh, steam comes out of it. And we're said that the heart is so hot it almost burned him. I don't know if that's accurate, but it, it would be around 100 degrees, okay? It's, it's warm. Compared to the dead heart is, you know, that's whatever room temperature. Aha! So the idea of the fire, the heat, energy, Think same stuff that's in the fire is in the live creature. Now this probably seems like a strange conclusion to us, uh, but what he is actually trying to prove is a scientific theory that was very popular at the time, and it was based on Aristotle. Uh, and they believe that heat came from light. I mean, as we mentioned before, he, he, say, he says that the sun is not hot. That is something they believe. The sun was not hot. Um, but it was the light from the sun. Okay, and if we think, what are the natural sources of light in the sky? These are the stars. Okay, and you may remember way back when we were talking about Aristotle and how his philosophy was adopted. Um, he believed there were like spheres around the earth, and these are where the stars were. And you kept going up um, higher and higher layers until you eventually you eventually reached um, the highest level, and this is where God transferred energy down to Earth. This is another big reason why people started charting the stars to determine the future. This is one reason. But it's also a place where theology and science come together, right? Because you could do astronomy, which is science, and then link this to astrology. Okay, so we go from God to the stars to fire. This is where energy comes from. This is from God to the stars to me and you into our hearts. This is how God puts a soul in us, and boom, when you die, uh, your soul goes off there. Again, it may not seem very convincing to us and even to, to people who were... Um, religious traditionalists of the time. It was a bit offensive to them. This is not the way they thought it worked. But remember, what he's trying to show is that everything is one. Science, religion, they're, they're all one. There's no difference. So um, talking about how God puts a soul in a human being and how the stars move around the sky and how fire works, and they've all got to be part of one theory. Okay. So that's some heavy stuff, right? Um, it's it's not near as heavy as some of the things he's going to figure out on this island anyway. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, Hai has invented just about every object you can think of. Um, I mean, he, he's invented everything that he needs. Uh, he has mastered agriculture uh, to the point now he has to build storehouses for all his excess grain and everything. He has domesticated animals. He's got them working on his farm. And it is in this regard uh, that this book is said to have influenced Robinson Crusoe, which was written in 1713. Uh, and one reason is because Hai ibn Yaqdan was translated into English the year before that. And we know Daniel Defoe, he was a very voracious reader, so it's um, quite possible that he read that. We don't know for sure if he did. 
Uh, what we do know is that also in the year before, um, the true story of a seaman named Alexander Selkirk, who was stranded on an island for four years, was published. And um, this is where he got the idea to write Robinson Crusoe based on that. The reason we think that there is similarity between Hai ibn Yaqvan and uh, Robinson Crusoe is because um, if, if you read Robinson Crusoe, not... It's it's very different than I mean all the kids cartoons and in in movies that have been made about it. The actual novel Robinson Crusoe is basically a, an endorsement of capitalism and the Protestant work ethic. And the idea is that Robinson Crusoe gets stranded on this island. I mean, he turns it into this thriving plantation, uh, and by the time he gets rescued, I mean he's. He's producing so much uh, agricultural goods that he, he makes a, a fortune. Um, and so there's that similarity because, I mean, Hai Ibn Yaqdan, at, at the same time, I mean, he's he's got the agriculture booming as well. But again, it's the same issue with Tarzan in the Jungle Book, is that this is just one phase of his life. Um, we're working through this to get to the big philosophical stuff, and I mean, this is where Robinson Crusoe uh, stops. Okay, so uh, for, for Hai ibn Yaqdan, these stages are just the beginning. I mean, yes, by age 21, this guy has mastered just about everything down here on earth, but Ibn Tufayl is just using this as a model to show you how his mind works. This is how the human mind developed tools, agriculture, sciences, Right. And then he's going to show how the same mind progresses on to spiritual enlightenment. like at age 21, but uh, by, by this age, Hai is entering his fourth cycle, and I mean, man, he's just a genius. Okay, so I mean, we, we've seen he's, he, he's invented hundreds of tools, he's uh, tamed the environment, so now he's going to move on to metaphysics and eventually into spiritual knowledge. Now, the conclusions that he is going to draw, you know, they're going to sound pretty strange to us. Uh, you know, he's going to look at something and, and make a conclusion, and you're going to go like, what? How did he come up with that? But we have to remember, they do reflect the understanding of natural science and philosophy of his day. So everything that Hay discovers would have been considered correct back then. I mean, just like he, he looks at this at a heart, you know, a cut open heart, and says, aha, the soul went right here. And they would say, yeah, okay, wow, well, he, he figured that out. Okay, so... You know, between ages 21 and 28, Hai is going to do some extensive experiments on living things and natural objects. I mean, we're talking really extensive. Uh, I mean, if a university built a lab on this island, I, I don't think they could keep up with, with this guy, um, you know, making stuff on his own. Uh, but anyway, he's going to draw some uh, conclusions about the nature of reality. And, and this is very important for the, the rationalist philosophy that Ibn Tufail is promoting because it sees science and philosophy as part of the same thing. I mean, today you can study physics and chemistry, and then you can study Kant and Nietzsche, um, but I mean, these are basically separate disciplines. I mean, you're not going to find too many university professors who teach philosophy and medicine or, you know, philosophy and physics. In his day, I mean, that was expected. I mean, remember, he's he's a medical guy. He's also a philosophy guy, as were all, all his contemporaries. Okay, so basically, in, in his method of thinking, every conclusion 
that he makes about the nature of being has to come from observing a real object. It can't be because someone else tells him this is the way it is. And it also can't be some nebulous feeling, right? So, you know, when people say, I, well, I believe there's a God because I feel that there's a God. I felt God's presence. That is absolutely not what they're going for. Now, this is what a Sufi would be going for. This is really what most religious traditionalists would be going for. Uh, and, and we know, we've talked about a number of them who would say, I mean, you cannot experience God just from pure logic. But remember, he's a rationalist. And so for him, you know, the, the fact that you need these feelings or, you know, spiritual revelation, that's just a sign of a weak mind. I mean, you should be able to look at an orange and, you know, figure out the theology from it. Okay, so now as we said, this, I mean, this guy has mastered the natural world. He's going to go on to philosophy. And the philosophy that he's going to discover is basically Platonic philosophy. Um, and Plato is, he, he's known for a lot of things, right? Um, but he's best known for his theory of the forms or the ideals. When people mention Platonic uh, philosophy, and then they mention the forms. That's usually the first thing that comes up. Okay, so I mean, what is this thing? And, and just briefly, I will do a butcher job on this, a, a an over over generalization, which I'm sure anyone will tell me is not nuanced. But basically, the the idea here is that for every concept that we have, there is an ideal version of this, and this is why we know things. We recognize them for what they are, and we have some agreement over things. What he's trying to deal with the idea is, you know, why, you know, why is it that every society has an idea of beauty, has an idea of taboo, has an idea of loyalty, of duty, of family? Why is this, right? Um, and why is it also that they're not exactly the same? So we could all, you know, basically agree on what is beautiful and what is ugly, right? You know, if we, if we discussed it, you know, probably everyone would look at, you know, some you know, snow-capped mountain and say that's beautiful. Um, and you could look at other things and say they're ugly. But it's not complete agreement. You know, I mean, you know, 90% of the people would agree on this one and that one. So what, what's going on here? Well, the way Plato explained this is there is, there is a perfect form of beauty, Exactly. There is a perfect form of truth, of courage, of everything you can imagine, of a, of a tree, right, of um, a mountain. There is a perfect version of every one of these. Now, in his writing, Plato says that these, these ideals or forms actually exist in heaven on pedestals. Now, whether he actually believed that or he's just using it as a metaphor is a matter of debate. I prefer to think he's just using it as a metaphor, but whatever. So there is a perfect form of the horse, for example. Um, that's why we can all look at something and say that's a horse and not a fish. Uh, but there's, you know, also the the little, you know, fudge about, okay, is that a mountain or a hill? Well, I don't know. It looks kind of, you know, it's kind of in between. And the reason is because the ideals exist only in heaven. Earth is not perfect. And so everything on earth is tainted, so nothing is the perfect ideal of beauty. Okay, there, No horse on earth is the perfect horse. Although there is a perfect template of a horse, we don't have it. Okay, So that's why there's agreement and disagreement. And this is kind of like that the saying, you know, oh, famous saying the old judge had about pornography. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. That's what they're saying. You know, how can we look at something and say, "Wow, that's, you know, that's a horse," and that's not. Okay, so uh, whether you agree with that or not, Aristotle um, did not, and his, I mean, he offered a different version of this, and this is probably the one of the biggest divides in in philosophy. But there is this um, this idea. So Hay is going to discover this. And what he's going to notice is there's a lot of individual things out there, but many of them share common characteristics. And again, it's, it's this idea of, I mean, this guy starts from absolute nothing and, and looks at the most basic facts. 
So every individual deer is different, but they have more things in common than they are different. And um, and all deer have certain things that birds do not. But all deer and birds and every other animal has certain things in common that a tree doesn't. So he gets the idea that there are common commonalities, common forms, and then individual variations, which is, I mean, this is absolutely the key of Platonic philosophy. Okay, so uh, Hai is going to work his way up the chain, uh, the chain of logic, and this is very important for the kind of, of um, view of learning that Ibn Tufayl has and that his contemporaries have, is the idea that you start with the smaller conclusion and you work up to bigger things. Okay, so, uh, for example, he, he, he notices all deer belong to one group. Uh, but then he notices all animals belong to one group, and plants belong to a separate group. But then he notices that all animals and plants uh, are different than non-living things, like rocks. Okay, uh, and then he notices that all things, living or not, they have some characteristics in common. So he worked his way up from the bottom, but then he's going to make the theory come down from the top, and this is that um, this is the concept of classes and subclasses. So he realizes that there's things, and there's living and non-living things, and then among the living things there are plants and animals, and then among the animals there are you know birds, mammals, blah 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 blah, and so forth. Okay. Now it's important to note uh, that Hai has no language at this point. He has no need for language. There is nobody he can talk to. Um, so he figures all this out without words. So the idea is not that he comes up with, you know, okay, this is a class, this is a subclass, but he just looks and knows. This is a criticism of um, the, the, um, the philosophy here that you can do this. There are some people who would say you can't do this. This is why we need logic. It doesn't matter. I mean, even if you're super smart and you're on an island all by yourself, you, you couldn't come up with a theory like this unless you had words to put it in. This is not the way that a rationalist thinks about it. They th believe that the human mind can figure out everything. So even though he has no words for nothing at all, he has developed this the whole idea of taxonomy, just I mean, just knowing, like he knows from the heart. Anyway, okay, so um, this this is one of the key points here is learning, and this from this that Ibn Tufayl is basically pushing his idea of how education should work. Okay, so the way that high learned is the way every human should learn. And the purpose of an education system is just to um, help you along. And um, he's very much against the top-down model of knowledge, where there's no critical thinking or questioning. You know, we're just told to memorize this and memorize that. Um, and he felt, and a lot of people felt, that education, and particularly religion, had become that way. It was just, oh, do this, don't do that, this is the truth, uh, memorize it. Um, and th this is very much the way um, the religious um, systems were of the day. And if we think of a traditional Quranic school, that's what you do, is a lot of memorization. Um, but this is definitely not what he's trying to push. He wants the idea of people learning um, on their own. And this is very much the philosophy of education that has become popular at least in the last hundred years in the West, in the United States, in, in, in England, and so forth. This is why we have chemistry lab, where you go and figure out what is an acid and an alkali on your own. And I remember, I remember we had to figure out the the formula for gravitational and acceleration in physics class by you know dropping something and measuring it, um, and, and you know we did did a pretty lousy job. But the idea is this for him is the way education should work, um, and he proves it. You know, see, you could just take a baby, drop it on a desert island, you come back fifty years, and like I mean, he knows everything that's in the library. Um, his critics did not believe that. Uh, they believe, no, you got to take these rowdy kids and put them in rows and, you know, hit them with a stick and make them memorize stuff. But he's, he is very much, in terms of education, he is a very liberal educator. Okay, 
So anyway, to, to give an example of this, and this is just to show the level of, of detail uh, that he goes into, and I, and I think it's very interesting. So, for example, uh, High has determined that you know all, all objects, all things, have substance. And by this, this means they have three dimensions, length, width, and depth, right? Three dimensions. You can't make one of those dimensions go away. I mean, you can't you can't take any real object and make it have you know only two dimensions. But what he does is he actually uses a ball of mud. Okay, uh, he takes his ball of mud and he learns that you can reshape it into any kind of shape you want. You can make it bigger or smaller. You can change any of those dimensions, but it has to have length, width, and depth. We can reduce the length. We can increase the width. Um, you know, you can put more mud on it, but you can't. You can't make any of those go away. Okay. Now, so here's his reasoning, and I'm. I'm really. I'm not sure that a guy just dropped on a desert island would come up with this. But anyway, from concluding that all material objects have these um, three dimensions, but it doesn't matter what they are as long as you have them. He comes up with this idea that there must be like a, a prototype, a generic object, right? An example of a thing, meaning something that has three dimensions, but they're not specific, okay? And his point is you cannot picture this, okay? So in order for something to be an object, it has to have three dimensions. Doesn't matter what the actual values of those three dimensions are, but it has to have them. Now, every real object is going to fit into that template, I will call it. He doesn't use the word template, but that's what I think of. Okay, but you try and think of the template, and you can't. Try and imagine an object that has length, width, and depth, but it doesn't matter what the length, width, and depth is. You can't imagine that. You can only picture individual ones. You can't picture the generic deer, only an actual deer. But you do know that there is a, a template of what a deer has to have. Now, of course, he, he's you know prior to DNA or anything like that. So he's coming up with this concept that there must be a template, a form, an ideal for everything. Okay, a tree has to have certain characteristics, but you can't imagine just the generic tree when none of those characteristics are specific. You can only imagine individual trees, but somehow he figures out that these things have to exist. The form, the ideal, the template exists somewhere. Now this is classical platonic philosophy, but here it's derived from scratch. And so what he's saying, this is why it's completely logical. Everyone should believe it. So when we tell you this in school, you should believe it because really if you just went to a, on a desert island and figured this out on your own, you would see that it's true. Uh, the author says that it's this point was High's first brush with the spiritual world. Now he is not talking about mystical experience here uh, when he says spiritual world. Uh, he's talking about a world of stuff you can't see that has to be there, right? You can't see gravity, but it's there, and so forth. He's talking that there's a world separate from what we see, and eventually he's going to discover God and, I mean, everything about religion. Okay, so just to step back here for a moment, um, one of the thinkers that Ibn Tufail is most against here and who he's rebutting is um, the infamous Al-Ghazali. You remember we had the episode about him and this is where he was the one that Neil deGrasse Tyson blamed for the entire downfall of Islamic civilization. Now in, in fairness, a lot of other people do blame Al-Ghazali as well. And Ibn Tufail would definitely have been in the camp of people who blame Al-Ghazali for a lot of stuff. Um, and in fact, uh, as I mentioned, Ibn Tufail's successor is Ibn Rushd, who would be the biggest critic of Al-Ghazali. Um, okay, so anyway, as we said though way back in that episode, that th these things are much bigger than one or two people fighting it out. These are We're talking here about major trends of thinking. Al-Ghazali represents one trend, and eventually it's the one that's going to win out, by the way. And people like Ibn Sina, Ibn Rushdi, Ibn Tufail, they're on the other side. 
Okay, uh, so just to recap, uh, basically what Al-Ghazali is saying is there, there's a limit to logical, rational learning. It can only take you so far. Spiritual knowledge, like the knowledge of God, you know, about God, what God wants, what God commands, this can only come to you from other means, not logical means. It comes from prophets, from revelation, from spiritual experience. Uh, and remember, Al-Ghazali was really the big uh, proponent who justified Sufism, this idea of this mystical experience of God. Now, to the rationalists, like Ibn Tufayl, uh, they say there is no division between a spiritual and a material realm. And this is like when we're talking about the stars. They're going to show, I mean, this is a point where these things connect. Uh, the exact same rules that give us physics give us God, give us, you know, the Ten Commandments, everything. And High Ibn Yaqvan is the proof of that. Okay, he's going to learn very abstract spiritual concepts through pure observation of the natural world. Okay, so for High, it is a very quick jump uh, from this discovery to the conclusion that God must exist. Now, I'll just warn you, we're getting near the end here, but I'll just warn you that if you're listening to this today because you want to scientifically prove that God exists, which I doubt is the case, um, you probably want to stop listening here because the proof that he offers, uh, it's probably not going to convince you very much. And as I said, the rationalists will end up losing this, this argument. Um, but it is definitely consistent with you know, what rationalists thought in his day. Okay, so um, the way this is going to go here is that objects in, in his time were thought to have certain qualities. And this comes from Aristotle. Now, we know much more about objects and why they're hot, why they're cold, why they're heavy, why they're light. These were considered to be properties of an object. Okay, um, So the two that High is going to investigate are hot versus cold and heavy versus light. Okay, now we know that these things are the result of other properties, right? The reason something is hot or, or cold is basically is because of the movement of the atoms inside it. No object has, you know, quote, lightness as a quality versus, quote, heaviness. But this is what they believed at the time. So High is going to do extensive experiments on these qualities. Again, I mean, I'm, I'm talking ex extensive. And he's going to discover that no object has neutral buoyancy, meaning that it neither rises or falls. Everything will either fall until it hits something or it will rise if you let it go, right? Um, and he tries everything. He cannot find an object that is neutral in terms of weight. And this is the way he sees it, right? Heavy object, light object. A light object is like smoke. It will rise. Okay. He even fills up an animal skin with hot air and it rises. Okay. Now, what we have to remember is that in, in the, the thinking of the time, these are two distinct properties. An object has, quote, lightness or an object has, quote, heaviness. One of these two things. Now, we know that's not true today, okay? but that's what they think. Now, he notes, and remember, he's got no language, but this is, this is occurring to him without words that no matter what you do to an object, you can't change it. Um, you, 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 can, uh, you can take a rock, you can cut it up in as many pieces as you want, you can't make the heaviness go away. It cannot lose its heaviness. Okay, now, how does he conclude that God exists from this? This may be a stretch for you, but he's going to look at certain things, and one of the specific ones he looks at is water. And he notes that it can change forms. Now, water in its natural state, he says, is cold and heavy, okay? But if you heat it, it changes into steam, which is light and hot. Now, it turns out a lot of stuff changes form, like particularly dead things or, or wood. Right? It, it's heavy until you throw it in the fire, and then it turns into smoke, which is light. But it's changing form. He is seeing water and steam as two different things. Okay, wood and smoke as two different things. Now, remember his first conclusion that these things come from absolute templates. 
So there is an absolute ideal form of water. There's an absolute ideal form of steam. Now, how is it that something changes from one thing to another? He's seeing water change from water. It's no longer water. It's steam. Now, we know it's still water, but he didn't know that. Aha. There has to be a transcendent power that can change the form. Because he's thinking, you can't do that. Now, I mean, you're making the heat, but you can't do that. Okay? Aha. At this point, he concludes that there is some sort of transcendent being that has this power. Aha. From here on out, he's going to spend the rest of his life trying to learn everything he can about this transcendent power. Um, you're going to be amazed at the things he learns, pretty much everything that's in religion. Now, again, if this is the best proof you've got for why God exists, you can see why Al-Ghazali's side wins out. I mean, they're the ones that are saying, no, okay, this is not about heating water. You just have to experience God, right? You, you have to see them, the, his prophecies and experience him in your life. Okay, even in our high-tech society today where we can do way better experiments than this one, I mean, most people don't believe in God because of scientific proofs, but out of a, a, a mystical, emotional inclination. By mystical, I don't mean anything weird. I'm talking about stuff that you don't use physical proofs for. Wow. Okay, so this is just the first half of the life of Hai ibn Yaqdan. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the spiritual half, which, I mean, if you thought this guy was making some amazing conclusions already, w wait till you get to the, the next half, and this will be amazing. Now, I mean, I know this may seem a little bit funny to those of you who are teachers out there, and you're trying to, you know, get kids to figure out how, how gravity works by doing an experiment, and think, oh my gosh, if I had... A bunch of kids like him, it would be easy. But I mean, this is what they see as the model here. But it's important to note this is not about a realistic story about a guy on an island. What we see here is really an educational philosophy, one that's based on critical reasoning and personal discovery and not rote learning. And he's very much going against the way most of the Quranic schools were at his time. I mean, basically the way people were relying on tradition. Uh, by this point, traditionalism in Islamic law had taken hold. I mean, there were no new hadiths coming out at this point. The collections were set. And pretty much when you, if you wanted to say why something was, you had to say, because so-and-so said this and therefore. Now that's only going to get worse as we go on through time and the rationalists are going to end up losing this battle big time. But in Ibn Tufayl's day, he still had a lot of hope that they could win this. This is also a philosophy that sees religion as a natural continuation of science. Okay, There is no difference between the scientific world and the spiritual world. Okay, So... Um, the idea, even today, we know people keep these things separate. Yes, I'm a scientist at work, but when I go to church, I'm spiritual. This is absolutely not what they believe in. Okay, um, now this is going to be a battle, and we've seen that the rationalists, when they held power, which they did through much of the Abbasid Caliphate, particularly under Al-Ma'mun, uh, they weren't nice guys about it. I mean, they had an inquisition. They had traditionalists like Ibn Hanbal locked up. So they were a little extreme, uh, or they're actually a lot extreme on their own. But what they're really trying to do, and their big concern, is that once you make a distinction between science and religion, when you say these two things are separate, then obviously in a, in a society which is based on religion, then science is going to come in second place, and it's going to be limited in the, in the fact that it can never go against what religion says. And so they're very much concerned about this, um, that if they lose this battle, you're going to see science getting squelched, that you're going to see it getting censored. And that's what they don't want. Now, if you live in 21st century America, I don't have to sell you on this. I mean, we, we've seen what's happening, the divide, almost the antagonism between science and religion. Think about it. Who are the biggest climate change deniers in our society, the biggest anti-vaxxers, and why? Now, I don't want to go off onto that rant, but it's um, easy enough for us in our high-tech uh, society, seeing what's going on, um, to cut the 12th century some slack, okay? I mean, we can't come down too hard upon them.
But anyway, I thank you very much. This was the first half, only the first half of a 60-page book, Hai Ibn Yaqdan. Uh, we're going to hit the really interesting spiritual half uh, next, so you can see why this is a densely packed and very influential book. Uh, I encourage you to check it out if you want. But if not, join us again next time. As always, we thank you for your kind attention. We thank you for your kind comments. Please check us out on Facebook and leave some comments. And until next time, shukran jazilin wa ma salama.